This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The young shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird, with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tanis, sent to herald the coming of the sun. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or chaos, made possible by support from the Peace and Disarmament Education Trust. Good morning, friends. Today we have with us on Community or Chaos, Jim O'Malley, a city councillor and chair of the Infrastructure Services Committee, Water, Transport, Waste, Environmental Solutions, Parks, and Recreation. I want to remind you that you can podcast this program or any other we've done recently by going to oar.org.nz, then going to podcast, and then going to Community or Chaos. Jim, very briefly, how have you found being a member of the Dean City Council, and why did you decide to stand again in the last election? Kira Marvin. Um, Generally speaking, I'd have to say it's been um, a rewarding experience. Um, It's good to be involved in the organisation and see how it works. I decided to run again in the last election primarily actually because I made a bid for the mayor and I felt that I'd be able to contribute well in that position. Um, But I felt that falling short of that, which I did, um, that I'd gained a lot of experience in the area of infrastructure and services, especially on some of the outward-facing activities the city does, like its transport and other such things, that I could do a good role there, and um, that's pretty much why I came back. I mentioned that you were chair of the um, Infrastructures Committee. Mm-hmm. So uh, I won't ask you any more about that, <laughs> but I'll go right on to the, uh, the local problem <laughs> that we're facing. So could you talk about the timetable for lead in drinking water at Wackawee and Caratana, and what are the implications of the DCC services acting as an efficient, well-run, connected city service? Cool. Um, yeah, I will go through that. Waikawaiti, Karatani, and I also want to um, mention Hawkesbury Village because that's also on the same distribution system. The This is basically the the, the um, overview I gave on Friday night at the um, East Otago Event Centre. Um, and at that same time on Friday, the City Council has released the graphs that show the lead levels that were measured during this whole period from um, July through to up to now. 
the measurements were being done to actually support a works program that started in July of last year um, around the replacement of there's a roundabout well, a section around Edinburgh Road, which is on the far, the racecourse side of the estuary out in Waikawaiti, has some very old pipes in it. The main township of Waikawaiti has its pipes from the 1990s, and Karatani has a mixture of those. Um, so there was a works program went in place, and they were looking at metals in the water as a as an indicator of the quality of the metal pipes that were out there with the intention of identifying the oldest ones to replace them first. So that's the purpose of this measuring. Normally, heavy metals are measured once a year under the National Water Standards, and that's what we do do. We are compliant on the National Water Standards in terms of everything else we do. Um, So in July, the the measurements were made at six different places. Um, The Waikawaiti Golf Course, the Karatani Bowls Club, outside the Golden Fleece Tavern on the main street of Waikawaiti, and then three places at the treatment plant, the intake reservoir, um, the reservoir, uh, the, the plant as it exits before it goes into the final filtration set, and then out the other side of the filters. So on that very first measurement in July, there was an elevated level of lead measured at the Waikawaiti Golf Course, but it wasn't measured anywhere else in the system. It was undetectable levels of lead everywhere. So the health department was identified of this elevated level. I, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, so I'm reluctant to say what it was, but it was it was elevated above what's called the minimum, a maximum acceptable value. Now the MAV, or as it, is what it stands for, um, is that's the maximum value that's acceptable if you always go back and test and find it there. So in other words, this is a tolerable amount of material that's always there chronically. It's not a value, there's no value for an acute spike. Okay, so this was found above the MAV, the um, health department was notified, lead was not detectable anywhere else in the system. The following week, it had gone well down below the MAV. So the interpretation at that time was something that was an unusual reading and we're not detecting lead anywhere else in the system. And that continued through to a small reading in October that went slightly over at, at that same site. Um, again, no lead detected anywhere else in the system. And then in December, and again, back down again, and all the way from October through to December, no lead or very low levels of lead detected in the system. Um, lead is an environmental element, by the way, so you can expect to see it in extremely low levels. Um, the reading, in, then there was a sample taken on 8th of December, again, against all of these six sites, and... That sample came back on the 18th, at which point the staff member receiving it was on vacation, so it got opened in the first week of January. Okay, that was a high reading in the 6th of December, right? It was a, yeah, it was a high sample on 8th of December. Okay, the, for the, December. The, the data came back and to the council on the don't, 18th. Don't your staff have enough knowledge to know that a lead in water should raise red flags? If nothing else, because of community Sorry, did staff have enough knowledge to... Realize that lead in water would is a red flag issue, particularly with the general yeah, yeah. Public. So that's why back in July, Southern District Health Board was flagged. But how come the public in that area wasn't notified at least by December, even if they would have no, explained? No, no. Nothing between July till December was positive. Yeah, but in the 8th of December, you did get positive. Right, and then and so I was in the middle of explaining it, so let me just finish the explanation. So 
it, because it was a works program and because there had been no other high measurements except for that one in August, there was no reason, the staff member had no reason to believe that they were going to be receiving any high levels during that period and was coming back to continue with the works program when they came back from vacation. The day they opened up their mail and saw it, it got elevated all the way up and it was elevated straight back to the Southern District Health Board. How come... For instance, I know that the new CEO was unhappy that she didn't get any hear anything until it got public. And you would think after what we've had around the world, the problem with lead in water, it's not like uh, polluted water. With polluted water, you can drink it as a boiler. When you boil lead water, it makes it worse. And so it seems to me that there should be more care taken that the communications were open and there wouldn't be any problems like... The communications... The, the, the person who was in, was in charge, he should have made arrangements to keep... To, for alerts. That as sort of the testing company, if you go down that line, and they didn't either. So uh, the National uh, Water Standards, as they're coming out, are changing the reportings along these things. And, in fact, any time any lead measurement's made anywhere, there'll be a new alert system put in place. But but I, I would have to say, equivalent also, how much lead was in that lead water? Leaded water, okay. depending about, on when you took the test. Apparently. Well, what I'm getting at is the other aspect of it is people are drawing um, parallels to overseas, as you just did, um, where that was chronic lead exposure. It wasn't a wasn't spikes followed by nothing. This this was elevated when the December measurements came back, and the Southern District Health Board saw them. It did not change the outcome as to what came next, next, whether they were told on the 18th of December or the first week of January, because the outcome of what came next was, again, we've had no readings and suddenly we've got two readings in disparate parts of the of the system, one out at Karatani and one at uh, Waikowati Golf Club, and the rest of the system is all negative. There is no lead detectable, undetectable, not low levels, but undetectable lead at the reservoir, at the three measuring sites of the reservoir, undetectable lead in the main distribution system of the town of Waikowati. So it got raised to watch because clearly there looks like there was something going on, but it was not considered to be enough of a public health threat to put a no drink notice up. Then on the, I think it's the 10th or 11th of January, it's, it's, it's basically two weeks ago, another sample taken at the reservoir intake showed a sample reading of lead there. That's when the no drink notice got put up because we're still in a situation of saying we don't know the public health risk. So to go to the point of saying there was a public health risk and why wasn't anybody notified is beyond the science that's in front of us right now. There were measurements of lead made at certain places. The public health risk is unknown and we could be anywhere from no risk to an event and we don't know where we're on that. So to jump to beyond that at this point is, to, is, to, is actually causing, in my opinion, a lot of um, fear in the community when we're at a state of we don't know. There are blood tests being done today. Aren't you also tests. providing drinking water? And we're, we're providing drinking water from, oh, by the way, I want to clarify another point here. The Waikawati system is completely different from the, the rest of the Dunedin city system, sure. which, which comes out of the Mount Grand Reservoir. 
and has never returned a positive lead level. Right, so so the Mount Grand Reservoir water goes as far as um, Seacliff, so water trucks operating out of Seacliff are filling up there off the Mount Grand water and taking those to the people of Waikowati. Well, you don't Kautani. want to damage if in mid-December there had been some kind of notice to the locals and the, the provision of drinking water from that time. The, 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 Would it have been the, much worse than what happened now as far as consequences I'm sorry I don't, what I'm saying you, is that that the communication because of finding lead in the water that was below what you that was higher above. than what you expected and higher than you previously years before shouldn't have that informed the water service people that they should take extra precautions including good communications when people go on holiday no because you see, up to that point one measurement had been seen it was when we was on vacation that the other one came through and uh, as far as five of the six sites in Waikowati and Karatani had never detected lead one site had detected it once and it was the very first measurement made on a program where those are old pipes in that section of the town. All other five places in the town up till that point had come back as undetectable. So there was no reason to believe that lead was in the system at all. And even now, my interpretation of that is it looks like there must be, with the information we have now, short periods of time where lead is becoming... Um, solubilized and elevated in the Waikawaiti River for at periods of time that are probably only hours long, the cause of which we don't know, and these short pulses are coming into the system. Now, do not continue distributing once you've come to that conclusion, but we didn't have that data to direct that until January. So even when the December readings came in, it, there was a sk- still a significant period of time where everybody who was skilled in this area looked at it and said we don't see enough here to bring about the need for a do not drink notice because we've we've erred on the side of caution at this point and unfortunately instead of being instead of people saying the council and district health board have acted cautiously here to protect public health the headline has been the council has poisoned us which unfortunately we're not going to be able to counter that until there's a lot of measurement done in the population I've asked to work with the local community board to make lead measurements in gardens, um, but only in gardens where we already know what the lead was beforehand because there is 10 million times the amount of lead on your house than there was in one of those litres of water at the highest spike. So people's environmental exposure to lead, generally speaking, is thousands of times higher than what was in the highest water spike. All right, but so and, and that's not, not in any way underestimating or, or reducing the responsibility to make sure there's no lead in the water. But I do think it needs to be put into some kind of context as the amount because people are afraid and, and they are being told, um, you know, the council's failed you, you are, you, we've created a position of unhealth and, and danger and I would say I don't believe we have and... 
we will only be able to demonstrate that once we've done this other series of measurements. And in terms of dealing with the pulse of lead that we think is coming out of the river, we're doing a high level of monitoring now at much higher frequencies to identify that that's in fact what happened. And if that is what happened, then we're going to go on to what are the engineering solutions to assure that it won't happen again. What do you think, do you have any guesses personally about, or does your staff have any guesses about the source of the lead? At the moment, you've got to go on the two spikes that occurred in December indicating that um, something dispersed through the whole of the system. Yeah. Um, we have a very high turnover system out there. Um, it's, it's, it's right on the edge of its ability to supply demand, so it doesn't take very long for the water that leaves the treatment station to actually get used, which is probably why those spikes move through quickly. If that reservoir reading is an indicator... That's the most upstream component of the system. We've now seen it. Yeah. Um, beforehand, you would have said potentially it could be in the pipes themselves, but now we've seen one in the reservoir. The, the, the logical conclusion is that, in fact, it's entering the system from the river. Um, there are multiple reasons that it could be. There's lots of things on that river that could be contributing. Um, I know that the mine got raised very early on, but their environmental reporting pretty much indicates that it's not them. Um, but I don't think we'll rule anything out until we've checked everything. Um, I've had locals say to me, there's a guy who ran suction dredges on both the Shag and on the Waikawaiti River, and he said, you would not believe the amount of lead shot in those rivers. Now, that, that sounds a bit more likely, to be honest. So I'm not one to say we know what's going on, but what you do is you say, OK, if this is, um, if this is a sus- suspected cause... These are the things that we'll be looking for. So we are measuring the pH of the river. Um, acidity of the river changes over time during the day. Um, if it got to the right level of acidity, then you can actually get lead released from old lead pellets. So it's possible that it may be, say, it's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the river's nice and warm, and there's a pulse of lead, soluble lead, that goes down the river. Now, that's obviously been going on for 100 years. Now, which is another thing to think about. The um, water treatment plants can they fo- filter lead out? Um, uh, does it need the main treatments? Does that filter? Well, the difference between the Waikawaiti River and the main one is that the main ones at Deep Creek and Deep Stream have a massive reserve around them. So one of the ways that you protect your water, free water, fresh water, is that you don't allow any activities in the area where the catchment is, and that's true for our main reservoirs. Um, the Waikawaiti River intake is really unusual in that regard, and my guess is it's these kind of intakes that are going to become looked at closely under the new three waters reviews that the government's coming through with, uh, under the standards reviews, is if you have limited ability to control the activity on the edge of your water intakes, then should you be taking water from there or not? And then the question is, if you are still going to take them, take water from there, what will you do with that water to ensure its safety? Now, I do want to point out that while heavy metal testing is not a standard test for water safety, bacterial count is, and so they're done every day at those plants. Um, and, and they've passed their regulatory requirements. So that water is not carrying... Um, infectious agents, such as what happened um, up in the North Island. At, yeah. um, but the difference is with, you can boil your drinking water if that's the problem. Yeah, but again, if you actually I mean, that's, stand uh, that, aside... You don't want to do that 
permanently, but that's a no. I mean, that is an answer, but that's that would be still a failure of a of a system. Oh, and, sure and the whole point is be. that what I'm saying actually is though that that system has delivered water that does not have microbial load in it, and this is an unexpected result. Which as soon as we've got a handle on what it is, we put a no drink notice out till we can understand what it is. That's not quite the same as saying that you believe the water is dangerous. What will you do? I think, by the way, you asked me a question and I never got to the answer. How can you deal with this? Um, if, if other elements are elevated at the same time, and what we have seen is that copper and iron get elevated at the same time, and zinc, which, by the way, is quite good, because if iron and zinc is in the water, then your ability to take up lead goes down. So it's not good, nice to know that part, at least. Those things conduct electricity, and we do have devices there to, to, to measure the conductivity of electricity of the water which is an indicator of whether you've got metals in the water or not the staff have started going back through that data set to see whether or not these these, these could have picked up pulses in the past we're also testing them against concentrations that we know were in those samples to see if they could pick them up if that's the case then you can measure, you can actually see a pulse occurring before it, before it gets into the system so we can put those things down at the level of the river and check there. The other one is on the far side, just before you chlorinate it, you can put it through what's called an ion exchange column, and that should take charged molecules out of the system. So that could capture it. So we could engineer our way around lead in the Waikawati River with a series of engineering steps that would make sure it doesn't get to the, to, to the distribution lines. Um, the other one we can think about is what would the cost be of putting a much bigger water line over the Leith Saddle and providing um, water all the way to Waikowati from the Mount Grand Station. And those, by the way, are things that the staff are looking at now. All right. Does problems with water, as in electricity in some extent, don't they go back 20 or 30 years in some regards? Because of in some regards, water? you might say that the pipe replacement work that we're doing in Edinburgh Street and Waikowati probably should have been done in the 1990s when the rest of the town was done. And it's easy for me to blame councils that were around before I was, but, but I would have to say that Dunedin in general has underspent in its three waters. Um, so three waters for those who are listening is stormwater, sewer and drinking water. Um, and certainly in the drinking water and the sewage area we've been underspending for years. Um, and that's Actually, the reason you're seeing the rates go up dramatically is that about two years ago, we made it clear to the Three Waters Department that we wanted to get a real understanding of what they really needed to spend to make sure the system was in good condition. And they came back with a new valuation that, that the waters is worth $2.5 billion, which means you should be spending about $30 million a year on it. We've had problems even with wastewater during flooding uh, that yep. was contracted out. Oh, you mean the the, the um, well, that was stormwater. That was yeah, the stormwater. Um, yep, and and the issue with sto- with contracting out is that you always go through a series of communications back with the forwards between the contractor and the, and the and the um, deliverer or the, or the client, us being the council. Um, currently, sewer and um, drinking water are done inside the council as an in-house operation and. I do find, that, as you can see here with this Waikowaiti incident, it's much faster to get information when your staff are directly in your building, and it's much faster to get an outcome when the staff report directly to you than it is if you're working through contractors. So they're directly under your... 
Yeah, yeah but interestingly enough, the water testing is done by an outside agency, and so we're using contractors for our testing. Is that a good idea? Um, My general feeling is, and I think it's shared by a lot of people, including the new CEO, is that if you're employing somebody 52 weeks of the year, then you might as well have them in-house as have them as a contractor. Um, the water testing equipment is in the millions of dollars, though, so to have your own water testing lab around some of this stuff is probably a big capital investment versus paying someone to test for you, who are you know, certified by the government. Mm. Okay. So some things you contract, some things you don't. I think we've gone too far down the contracting line, though, in general. How should CCOs, council controlled organizations, and also I could I think I could put that to uh, state-owned enterprises, aren't they at arm's length from the uh, government and local body representatives? Uh, very much so. So when you look at um, the council's ownership of CCO, there's two acts. There's two laws that are very important here. One is the um, Local Government Act, but the other one is the Companies Act. And, you know, they effectively are companies to which we're shareholders. So, therefore, our communication with the CCOs is as if we were a shareholder. And shareholders under the Companies Act can't get directly involved with the management of their own companies. They have to work through their board. So we have to work through a board to deal with our own CCOs. And I think that arm's length issue causes problems. Okay. I think... um, Also remember this too, Marvin. With the, let's say, Aurora, we sent them, the council as a shareholder, sent them some very mixed messages in the 1990s and early 2000s, which was give us as much money as you can because we want to keep rates down. And... They didn't send them another very clear message, which was do not run the system into the ground. Don't we have a history, both on the national level and the local body level, with these business-run enterprises, that they have a real uh, temptation to go for paying off their dividends for profitability, and they may sometimes put that before public service. For instance, in the um, electricity department generally, Mm. the state-owned, they cut poor people's uh, electricity because they couldn't afford to pay the rates, electricity rates. Well, I certainly don't think that electricity reform actually delivered anything that's worthy of... of, of um, it didn't deliver efficiencies. It didn't deliver um, appropriate use of energy. I mean, I, I went to a conference not long ago and someone told me that they were up at Tekapo on Christmas week and saw the Tekapo Dam spilling water. Well, you don't, you don't spill a dam water in the middle of um, the summer, but you do if you are trying to increase the spot price of electricity. So electricity reform, in fact, has, has resulted in poor use of the hydroelectricity resources right there. And then in the case of turning your lines companies, well, making lines companies out of what used to be your old electricity department has changed the emphasis from providing a good and reproducible system for the customer who is the ratepayer to a company that's supposed to make profit and what you're arguing, apparently, if you believe in this, is that the efficiencies will, will be greater than the profit taken. And I just, boy, you have to be efficient from zero profit to taking profit. 
So I'm really quite worried about what's going to happen with water because the government's now going through a similar reform process with water and we could very well lose it out of our hands. There are those who are running around saying council's useless and they've killed us and poisoned us. What happened at Waikowaiti, what happened with the fire um, at Deep Creek and Deep Stream wouldn't have been any different whether that was council run or whether it was run by another organisation. The difference is in both times, though, the response and what we do next, I think, is quite different if it's council run versus at arm's length. All right, we might play some music then and we'll carry on. Thanks. To barren waste without the taste of water, cool water. water. Oh, Dan and I with throats burned dry and souls that cry for water, water. cool, clear. Moving Dan, don't you listen to him, Dan He's a devil, not a man He spreads the burning sand with water Dan, can you see that big green tree Where the water's running free And it's waiting there for me And you The nights are cool and I'm a fool each star's a pool of water, cool water. But with the dawn I'll wake and yawn and carry on to water, water. Keep a moving, Dan, don't you listen to him, Dan. He's a devil, not a man. He spreads the burning sand with water. Dan, can you see that big green tree where the water's running free and it's waiting there for me? Hello, friends. We're talking with Jim O'Malley, who's the uh, city councilor and chairperson of the infrastructure service, including water, transport, waste, and environmental solutions, parks, and recreation. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and going to 
podcast and going to Community or Chaos. Could you talk about um, where we go from here with water and talking about water generally and water purity and availability and cost to the general public? Sure. Um, I think, you know, what the events of Waikawaii have shown us this is that there's still opportunities to, to improve and the public needs to be absolutely certain that when you open up a tap and drink from it, there's nothing in that water that you have to worry about. Um, our own internal procedures will definitely change around this. Um, we will up, we have already ramped up the testing for heavy metals in the water way above the national standards, which is once a year. Because what they were thinking when they set those standards up was you were testing for the integrity of your pipes. And if you had old pipes, then lead would elevate slowly over time. So once a year was enough to check as to whether or not your water was safe. It never seemed to occur to anybody that maybe your source of water might be actually having lead in it. Um, so we'll definitely challenge that. We're going to respond to that and make sure that we're testing properly. But it gets to another much bigger question. And if those of you who remember the Havelock North incident, that was a case of um, Campylobacter and I think another infectious agent getting into the water system itself through an untreated bore. And that bore was actually not as deep as they thought it was and it was actually being influenced. Fresh water from the surface was coming into it and basically sheep droppings got into the system and it was untreated water. So people got really, really sick. And if you look at the quality of the water around the country, it is highly variable from council to council as to what that water quality is like. People who have been always reducing rates or saying, I don't want a rates increase, have always gone to three waters and done cuts in the three waters environment because a buried pipe something to ignore. To give you a sense, 40% of all of the city's spend is between capital and operational expense in three waters. So it is by far and away our biggest expense. So cutting back on that gives you a biggest rate savings return. Doing it properly increases your rates the most. So our capital spend for this next year is, I believe, $35 million. Maybe slightly wrong, it might be 32 to $35 million. It used to be only 10 And we were grossly underspending on our own water, yet we were spending better than almost everybody around us. Clutha District just got given an enormous fine for the quality of their water in Belclutha. So it's become clear to everybody that small councils especially have been very much underinvesting in the water. So now there's going to be a major investment required. To put this directly on the councils, they're going to have to take out a massive amounts of debt, and they don't want to do that, so they want the government to do it instead. The government has said, we'll do it, but we'll only do it if you hand over your assets to us because we don't trust you to do this properly. And at the same time, they're setting up a whole new set of national water standards. So what happened on December when the measuring com- when the when the company in Wellington measured the water and saw the high lead, right now that would have been elevated to a whole new signalling system, and there'd be, there would have been people in the Dunedin City Council and the Southern District Health Board who would have received that lead reading immediately. So those things are coming in, and I 100% support the changes in the national water drinking standards because we have been lagging behind. New Zealand's actually quite bad at keeping up the standards. You know, as I was looking through to the phasing out of lead petrol. And we, we phase it out after the UK and even the US. Um, so we're quite poor in some respects in terms of our standards. 
for health and safety. So I, I really do support coming up with these new standards, which means that there's going to be an enormous need for increased capital spend, especially in these councils that have run their systems into the ground. I'm a bit worried about what comes next, and they're saying, well, what they want to do is they want to aggregate all of the water activities in sections of the country into one water authority. But it won't be a CCO because they know that CCOs don't work. And this has been run by the Department of Internal Affairs. When they're asked what is it going to look like, they go, we don't know yet. We still haven't sorted the structure out. And I'm a bit worried that we're running down the road to do this when we haven't even really sorted out what the structure would be. We haven't even sorted out how many water authorities there'll be. So there may be only four, and if there's only four, it means the whole of the South Island would be a single water authority, which worries me. Yeah. The other thing that um, in the past when they restructured uh, government services, they made them standalone enterprises, and our best example is probably electricity. Mm -hmm. And would you like to see our national water run the the way electricity should water be metered and should people get the amount of water they can afford to pay for instance if you're a wealthy person you can afford to run a swimming pool well water metering will definitely come in with this new system especially if it's running out as uh, under water authority there's absolutely no doubt the flag that 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 is that is actually a fact that will happen Um, what will happen is if this goes ahead Water will come out of your DCC rates, so you should see a pretty significant rates decrease. Um, but you'll get a separate water bill, and that separate water bill now will be equivalent to around about mm, anywhere between a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars a year. Um, and that may be broken down in in an you know, actual measured amount, so your water would be you'd be charged per cubic meter. You be charged on use. What would you like to see happen? I mean, you probably... I, what I'd like to see happen is... Um, I mean, Dunedin probably is a position we can actually run a good water system if we're willing to pay for rates. And so yeah, on. and I think, I think the thing is I'd like to see the model that's run with transport being run at the moment. So we own our roads, and all the work we do on a city road is 50% funded by the government and 50% met by us. So the government has a central funding model, which it then hands out to the to the different cities based on their needs. So this is the idea that will the government help me move forward on this? But the actual city still has control over its assets and its roads. Um, to me, we could come up with a model like that for water, where and then and then the other thing you say is I could, and you just hit it on the head. If you go up to our water department, there's probably about fifty people in that on that floor. So we have engineers, we have planners, we have Everybody, basically everybody who needs to run a water system. If you were to go up to the Waitaki district, you'd probably have four people in there. Same with Clutha district, CODC. They all have this issue of they've got many less staff. So one of the one of the ideas that we've been putting forward is, well, what you would do in this model is that is that maybe in Dunedin or maybe based in one of those other towns, you would have those specialist people, but they'd be split over those three or four towns that are much smaller because that's their workload anyway. It would work fine. And so we'd have a cooperative behaviour. Um, but and, and also we would... The other thing that's not being done right now, we don't standardise buy. So we buy a water pipe, Dunedin buys a water pipe, CODC buys a water pipe. We don't, we don't act as a single buyer, whereas we could act. We could aggregate our buying activity without having to give up our assets. We don't have 
a standard shape or size for a manhole cover, which we should. <laughs> I mean, so there's some stuff we can do that would basically make the system much be- run much better without having to take the asset away from the city. Do you think this government's capable of listening to this kind of argument, or are they, are they too confirmed to uh, standalone enterprises such as uh, electric power? I believe that what happens in government is you have a, you have a tension between the um, elected government and then you have and the administrative side of government. And Treasury and the Department of Internal Affairs has always liked these models, um, so they're pushing along these models. You got to remember it was Labor that gave us Roger Douglas. These are the grandchildren of Roger Douglas. They don't seem to be saying things along the lines that they don't want to do it. They certainly are saying they do want to do it. I can only hope that they're listening um, because the, the other thing that really matters is that when you consider, you know, we're going into variation on the second generation plan, the district plan, and I don't want to say too much about it because I'm going to be sitting on that panel, but a lot of the stuff that's going to be considered is the ability to deliver the three waters infrastructure. So if, if Dunedin goes into a high growth phase in the future, we may want to actually designate where we want to grow and we need to be able to put our three waters into that area. And, and I'm worried that if we have a South Island water delivery system, then we're going to have to negotiate with someone who's got interest in Nelson and Christchurch and the West Coast. And we may not do well in that negotiation for where we want to grow the city next. So I'm, again, really concerned. Actually, that's probably my biggest concern, that our district plans and our spatial plans and our ability to execute them properly may be affected quite negatively if we don't have direct control over how and where we send, put our three waters resources. And any time you set up an organisation that is basically not in your building, you run into issues of communication. Okay. The uh, last three years we've seen in Dineen relatively low um, rate increases, about 3% or mm-hmm. so. And now it's going to go up to 9% apparently or more. Mm-hmm. And uh, the forecast is that it will continue going up maybe around 9% for some time. Is that? Oh, I think 9.8 is the highest and then it drops off. But if you look at all 10-year plans, they always have a big rates increase on year one because it's, you've gone back and re-looked at your budgets after three years of executing the old budget. And the tendency to make the ratepayer happy has been to <laughs> underspend in years four, five, and six. And so you underspend in those years, then you come back there, years one, two, and three of the next 10-year plan, and you realise you've underspent. I mean, a good example of that was in the last 10-year plan, I was the only person that pointed this out, the closure of Green Island and the reactivation of a new landfill was not in the budget. And now it's in the budget. So there's another $90 million, or I think $80 million put into the budget that had to come in. Um, and realistically, we have been grossly underspending on our three waters infrastructure. Um, and what we're going to start, and we're actually, as we've started to ramp up the spending on it, the renewals, we are actually seeing a reduction in failure rates. Um, so the, the number of burst pipes is starting to go down, um, but we really shouldn't be having hardly any. And that's a reflection of underinvesting. So we've turned around and said, okay, let's invest properly. And to invest properly, We've got these new rates increases. Well, this is all right for many people, but what about people on fixed... There are a lot of 
people on fixed incomes. In the, you got people, for instance, who are on benefits who may yep. actually own a house. Then you've got a lot of superannuants, a high percentage, and they're on a fixed income. Now, if they have an expensive, a relatively expensive property, or they have an expensive, an area that was cheap but is now high valued, their rates may be intolerable, and they may have to actually move or become homeless. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I completely acknowledge that, and we, and we. I think it was a fifteen-zero vote. I think everybody once we started talking about it, and and I put up a motion that, um, well, we, rather than say what we'll do, the first thing we need to know, answer to a number of those statements you've just state, said. How many people? What are their fixed incomes like? So basically, I've asked staff with that motion, and it was passed with a fifteen-nil vote to come back in time for the not this long-term plan because there's no time to prepare something like this in just a few months, but not just let another three years pass and find ourselves here again in 2024 in time for that next 10-year plan to come back and say what would the implications be of giving rates rebates to people who are on fixed incomes Um, because on the other side of that coin that you've mentioned, I've had a lot of people who are not on fixed incomes who are young who are saying please do not restrict the rates increases and deliver us a city that's not worth living in as we get older. So that's a balance between the two groups. Um, just want to touch on your comment about whether the value of your house has gone up or not. Your rates, if the prices of the houses, if the value of the houses in Dunedin go up by 50% across the board, which means yours goes up as well by 50%, then your rates won't increase. It's your relative value of your house to the relative value in the city now, what has happened is that um, some of the um, lower socioeconomic sections of the city, notably around parts of South Dunedin, um, the value of those houses went up more than proportionally more than the houses in the wealthier sections of the city. So those rates are expected to increase slightly more than the, than the nine point eight. However, we have also gone back and tweaked those ratios to try to reduce that down as much as we can on those houses. So we've been aware that there has been some disproportionate change in rates value, rateable value, so the CV, um, but we're acknowledging that we don't, it's not our intention that those houses suddenly take on an unfair burden. So we've looked at that as well. Um, I, know, I know people can get, if they're on very low income, can get rates rebates. Is that the solution? About 600 a year. Mm. Is that... Is that the well, you see, in that report, and I and I haven't had a chance to talk to Joe Miller at Grey Power yet, um, but I do want Grey Power to get involved and in, in other agencies that are associated with people because that's that's that is elderly and fixed income, so that's one of the fixed income groups. Um, to talk about where where would you get this rates rebate from and how would you reduce the burden and also to ask those people what is a reasonable burden to expect because we are asking others to take on this burden and if we do it just as an internal transfer of wealth then obviously for every dollar that rate payer is not paying we have to transfer that dollar to somebody else to pay so there's a, that's why I'm giving it three years. I, I think I want, I've asked for the report to come back in time for the next annual plan so that the first report get written in time for public discussion and public consultation this time next year so that we can have a really robust discussion so we can have something fully in place for the next long-term plan. 
I imagine even within the commercial sector, there's difficulty. With, I mean, some people probably have high profits and don't pay as much as they could, while other people um, either are renting property for their for their business or other circumstances may. So it's not a simple question, is it? Well. Yeah, because what you what you have actually is you have this you have a basic you have a basic model which says the council comes back with this budget and this is a budgetary requirement. So this is how much we're gonna to have to raise. And then we go, this is the valuation of all the property in the city, and then we put another multiplier in front of that and we say we're gonna change your valuation by this yeah. multiplier. So commercial businesses, their valuation goes up. Farms goes down because a farm is a gigantic property with only one family living on it. So we push these down a little bit, um, and houses against houses being kept at a ratio of one. Um, is rates the? But rates is a very blunt tool. I think it's very. You might be yeah. going to ask me, is that what? Yeah. Yeah, it's not related to your income. Would you like to see uh, local bodies uh, in uh, finance by means that were related to income? There's lots of different models around the world, and, and our model is the one that's operated in a fair number of countries, and I find that it, it happened to me personally in the United States. When I got laid off from Pfizer, my property tax was $13,000 a year. It didn't go down once my income went to zero, and it was one of the major determining factors of me eventually having to leave. Um, I just couldn't afford to stay any longer. Um, so your property... Generally, there's a there's a there's a rough proportion to your wealth to the, to the value of your property. You've obviously got a mortgage at some point to buy it. You know, for ninety percent of the people, if you didn't inherit it, but your circumstances can and do change over life. And certainly, as you get older and you go into retirement age, your circumstances can change dramatically, and your your, your income that you were earning stops, and now you're on the fixed income of a retirement benefit. Um, so would it be better to go to to, to an income-related system? I don't think it'd be a bad idea. I mean, but I tell you right now, I also don't think it's going to happen, so we're just talking theoretically okay. here. It would be better, in my opinion, if we all just paid income tax and the government turned around and gave money back to the cities. Like some Scandinavian countries. Yeah, you know, it seems to be perfectly sensible to me. So we've probably gone as far as we're going to go with that. Now, housing... Mm-hmm. What can we do to make housing more affordable? My honest, my honest state on that is make um, the ability to finance a house for rental harder. Um, it's funny, the, the Reserve Bank does a, a thing where they take their board around the country and they have their board meetings in different cities so they can talk to people in the city. And so the Reserve Bank was in Dunedin about two months ago. So I had the honour to actually talk to Adrian Orr about this very question. And I said to him, and it actually wasn't much different from what he's been saying publicly, I said, you have a housing crisis when you don't have enough houses for people. You don't have enough roofs built for people to live inside a structure. And we do have house, we do have couch surfing and other such things going on, so we do have a certain percentage of the population who maybe don't even have a house. But, but generally speaking... People have a house. The problem is we have an ownership problem. A lot of those people are renting. 
huge number and more and more are renting. And people who could have entered the housing market as owners 20 years ago are simply not able to enter it anymore. And you have to ask this question, is this good for society? that the person who's got that house in their ownership and is paying off the mortgage by renting it out, effectively using the renter to increase their wealth, is that good for us? And I would argue it isn't. So I think that all the, all the vehicles, that, all the levers that are at play that the government could use are there, but they don't want to use them because they really don't want to offend and therefore lose the votes of people who have one, two or three houses as income. Okay. How is Archer doing before we leave you? It's um, it's doing okay. We we've been hit really quite hard by the border closure, um, because about forty percent of our retailers were in tourism, and so we are still down thirty percent from where we were um, before COVID hit, and um, we needed to go up another thirty percent for break even with the to have a CEO and other such things. So we laid off the, the general manager's position to make a savings, and that's, that's put me back into a chocolate company. Um, and I'm just taking a much, much, much lower salary and deferring the payment until the company can pay me. And we are just about breaking even. We need to get a little bit bigger to get to a break-even state. So we were on target to be to have broken through and be standing alone this, about by now. But COVID's pushed us back a bit, and we're just having to get through that now. Well, you're, posi- you're positive about Ocho. Oh, yeah, and I think the thing is that we, we're still continuing with our expansion through the country. So we went into a few supermarkets in Wellington, and the most relevant of that would be more Wilson, which is downtown. Um, they're buying a lot of chocolate. We got into to Papa. Um, so we're, in, we're the only chocolate in their store at the moment. We were in the middle of advancing into Auckland when Auckland went into its second lockdown, and so we had to abandon that. So, you know, it throws you a few curveballs. But, but everywhere we go, we, we then grow once we're in that place. And so it's a matter of just adding them on and on and on. So we're going to go around probably um, in the next two months and do, go and do another crowdfunding. It won't be as big as the first one, and it will be to basically support a market expansion so we can get the growth we need to. All right. Well, thanks a lot for coming on board. Thanks, Mum. And um, we'll see you again. I will be whenever you need me. <laughs> this podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.